Welcome to the next episode of the Austin Bar Association's Council of Firsts. I'm your host, Amanda Arriaga, First Latina Bar President. This podcast is made possible by the Texas Bar Foundation. In today's episode, we talk to Dimple Malhatra, Travis County's first elected South Asian judge and first female Asian judge. Judge Malhatra and her family immigrated from New Delhi when she was a child. She's a graduate of the University of Texas and the University of Texas School of Law. She began her career in California, working for nonprofits that support victims of domestic violence. Then she moved back to Texas and worked for the Travis County Family Violence Unit for over 10 years. In 2019, she was appointed to preside over the only domestic violence court in Travis County, County Court at Law No. 4. And in 2020, she was elected by the voters of Travis County to serve that remaining term. When I met Judge Malhatra, we became fast friends and talked for two hours straight. She loves Wonder Woman, and you will find throughout this conversation that Wonder Woman would love her as well. So break out the truth lasso as we talk to Judge Malhatra. Judge, thank you for being here with us today. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much. And of course, it's so wonderful to see you again. I know. I, I think for some reason when we met, I decided that we have known each other for our it whole lives. It felt that way. It felt it that really way. Did. Yeah. Yes, we were in a very hot room and immediately bonded, <laughs> office. your yes. office, and immediately bonded over how hot it was and then everything else that we had in common. Right. So I want to start with your backstory. Okay. You and your family come from New Delhi. Yes. Can you tell us about why your family made the choice to come to America? I think similar to most families that decide to immigrate to the U.S. from a country like India, my parents felt like there would be more opportunities for their kids and they, uh, of course, you know, there are three girls in my family. I'm the oldest. And, um, you know, for my parents, it just made perfect sense to come to the states where they knew they could give their children uh, education and independence, um, security, stability. And so they left their family and everything that they've known and came here when I was only two years old. Why did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? I, you know, it's not so much that I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. It's really that I wanted to do work that would impact people's lives. And this was the best way to do that. Uh, for me in particular, I was exposed to domestic violence as a young child. And so I decided that I wanted to help people who had been affected by this issue and really, what was the best way for me to be able to do that? Um, and I decided that going to law school uh, was going to allow me the opportunity to, to help people. Some people might have taken a different path and said, I experienced this thing. I never want to deal with it. But your entire career is focused on domestic violence issues. How did you make that decision that that was now the cause that because you had been part of it, now you were going to for lack of a better word, try to fix it? It became very apparent to me early on that domestic violence is one of those uh, rare issues that really impacts everyone, not just the people that are directly involved, but it impacts every fabric of our society. Uh, I was a child in my home, and the experience of being a child in a home where there is domestic violence occurring, um, you know, can really influence uh, your childhood, how you see the world. There are no barriers. As far as domestic violence goes, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter what your educational background is, uh, no one is immune from this issue. And so uh, for me, it was very important to um, 
have a career where I could have some kind of effect, um, positive effect on people who were experiencing this. And after quite a career, you made the transition to being not just a lawyer, but a judge that oversees domestic violence cases. How did you decide you wanted to be a judge? And again, I never decided I wanted to be a judge. Really, I really didn't. For me, it's always been about the work. It's never been about getting to a particular point in my career. Um, in fact, I really shied away from the idea of being a judge. I was very content with doing, you know, the just being at sort of the, the ground level, if you will. Um, and I'm a person who doesn't really love change. So I had been working in the nonprofit arena after I graduated from UT Law School. I worked in nonprofits for about six years, and I loved it. Uh, and I was primarily in the Bay Area. I moved back here. And I just happened to kind of stumble upon an opportunity at the Travis County Attorney's Office, had never had any inclination to practice criminal law or anything even in that world. Um, but it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. And then 10 years later, I was the chief prosecutor of the Family Violence Unit and then the chief of the Protective Order Division. And... Then, after being at the county attorney's office for about 10 years, the DA, who had been elected at the time, Margaret Moore, decided to create a felony family violence unit at the Travis County DA's office. And surprisingly, there had never been one before. And she asked if I would come over and head that up. And even then, I told her, well, convince me. And she looked at me like I had three heads. She was like, what do you mean, convince you? Um, and I said, well, I, you know, I want to know exactly what your intentions are. What do you want to see happen with this unit? I really want to know if I'm going to make a difference. And she did convince me. I came over. I was there for about three years when the judge of this court that I now preside over, Judge Mike Denton, he decided to retire. And when he retired midterm, the commissioner's court of Travis County had to appoint someone and I still was reluctant. And I, because I, you know, not that I doubted myself, but I thought, well, I'm really comfortable where I'm at. I feel like I'm making a difference here. Should I? Should I do this? And then I heard, well, 19 people were applying. And then, you know, oftentimes I think, especially for me, being an immigrant, being a woman, being a woman of color, you do have these insecurities and I was plagued by them. And I thought, well, it, there's no way that I, someone who looks like me, someone with my background, there's no way that they would consider me to be a judge. But I put my, you know, I put my name in there and, and um, the rest is history. I, you know, competed with 19 people and it was sort of a rigorous process, went through an interview with a ton of people. Um, and I was appointed. And then after I was appointed, I remember someone, a friend of mine said, well, now you have to run. And I'm not kidding. This is going to sound ridiculous, but I said, run where? And <laughs> my friend said, you have to, if you want to keep this job, um, you have to run in the, in the next election. And so it was never my desire to be a judge. I've never been someone who wants to climb the career ladder. For me, it's always been, can I find a way to do the work that makes me happy? 
And I think if you do that, you end up where you're supposed to be. So, Well, and I think that's what is the most wholesome and charming part about the story, is there are some people who believe they were called for higher aspirations. Yes. And they will spend their whole life trying to get that calling because someone told them, you are destined for greatness. Yes. And there's a difference between people that are always climbing the ladder, finding the greatness they are owed, versus a person that just spent their career doing the right thing to help people. And then to, to say convince me, it's very, uh, to make an old reference, it's very <laughs> Mr. Smith goes to Washington of you. That it's like, well, I, I, I guess I could, but I don't know, but I'll do it and I'll do a great job and the voters will pick me. Yeah. So I'm glad um, I'm glad for you that you took that leap and that you decided to put yourself out there because that is always the first step. Um, and then it just happened that you made history it, as the yeah. first South Asian elected judge, as the first female Asian judge. So how was that celebrated? You know, this is a funny story. I don't think the gravity of that actually hit me until my swearing in. I went to my swearing in. My family, of course, was going to be there. My parents were coming from Dallas. My sister was coming from Houston. My kids were going to be there. It was in the afternoon on a Friday. And I remember walking in, and the courtroom was packed. And then there was a KXAN camera in there. And I literally immediately turned around, and I looked at my campaign manager, and I said, what is going on? Why is this camera here? Because I am actually a very introverted, shy person. And so I, I, for me, I didn't even have social media, by the way, until I knew that I had to run. Um, and so for me, it just immediately was just intimidating. And I remember her saying to me, Sylvia Camarillo, that's my, uh, was my campaign manager, and she kind of held me by my shoulders and said, hey, you're making history here. That's why they're here. This is important. And she said, put a smile on your face and get out there. I mean, she was hilarious. But um, I, I think at that moment I realized, oh, okay, this is, this is bigger than me. Um, and I gave some remarks that afternoon and I talked about that, that this is not really about me. This is about our entire community. Um, this is about the, you know, the little boys and girls who look like me um, thinking to themselves, I can do this. Uh, I remember, and I think I told you this story when we met, my son at the time was in elementary school and I went to, they had a live museum. I'm sure you all are young enough to know what that is, but everyone plays a different character and you go in and you ask them questions. And there was a, a young Indian girl there and she was dressed as Justice Sotomayor, and she looked at me. I was talking to my son, who was right next to her, and she looked at me and said, you're, you're the new Indian judge. And I kind of smiled, and I looked at her, and I said, yeah, I am. And she said, you know what? That's really cool, because I thought to myself, if you can do it, that means I can do it. And it was, I think that was just such an amazing moment, because um, to hear that from a child who looked so much like me when I was that age. And it just, that moment was, was so poignant for me. Um, but the swearing in, I think, seeing my parents in the audience and having 
having the opportunity to thank them. I'm so sorry <laughs> for all of their sacrifices. They came here with nothing. Um, that was a big moment. Uh, I just need you to know something about me that we didn't talk about is if you cry, I cry. <laughs> because my superpower is I can tell when tears are real or fake. So when I was in charge of HR, made it really easy when people were crying for being fired. Because if nothing happened to me, I knew they were lying. Um, so this is totally fine. And um, for comic <laughs> relief, I want to know who this child is that is so well-versed on current events. I know. To know that you are a local judge that is the new Indian lady judge. <laughs> because I wonder if her parents were like, go congratulate her. Or if she just like reads the paper. Yeah. And was I like, think that oh, was it. Dimple, is it? Yeah. I mean, that's great. And that's what this is about is part of the reason that I um, harassed you to come do this interview <laughs> Is we celebrate people that have been celebrated and that we know of. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of articles, there are a lot of awards to the same people because once you are known for um, being the thing, you keep getting rewarded for the same thing. But we have a lot of these stories that not everybody knows. Right. Um, and county court, criminal court isn't necessarily something that would classically be focused on. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think that the domestic violence court is an important thing to feature uh, and the fact that you're historic and fun and <laughs> that's just another bonus well thank you so much i mean it's it, it is really an honor to be here and to be able to talk about this because you're right i mean nobody really knows about county court at law four and i remember when i was campaigning and i was calling people i called four thousand people on my own during the pandemic and it I remember talking to people and saying, please just give me 60 seconds. I just want to tell you about this really important court. And I know you don't know anything about it. And they're like, county court at law four, is that in Travis County even? What do you do? And as soon as I said to people, it's the domestic violence court, all of a sudden, you know, 60 seconds turned into two minutes or three minutes because people do care about this issue because everyone knows someone who has experienced this. Everyone knows someone. When you pick juries on these cases. Every single prosecutor who picks a jury will say, is there anyone here who has been personally or you know someone who's been affected by this issue? And I can't tell you how many people raise their hand. It's, it's sad, uh, but it's true. And so a question that I'm sure came up during the campaign um, is because you spent your career doing domestic violence cases and you have a background, some might think that it would be hard for you to be impartial as the judge. Right. So how do you maintain your impartiality? It did come up quite a bit, um, and I had opponents in every election, and so that was, that was really the issue that kept uh, rearing its ugly head. But it's a fair question, um, and my response to that is, first, you know, I think you have to remember when you're talking about being a prosecutor. As a prosecutor, I took an oath to seek justice, not conviction. And so people have to remember that, that, um, and that not to say that there aren't prosecutors in the world who are doing the wrong thing. Unfortunately, with every profession, you have people who really shouldn't be in that profession, who are there for the wrong reason. There are prosecutors across the nation who are not seeking justice. They are seeking convictions and wins. 
And this is not about winning or losing. This is about someone's life. This is about justice. This is about helping people. Um, so that was very important to me as a prosecutor. I took an oath as a judge to be fair and impartial. And that is also incredibly important. You know, when I was sworn in and I took that oath, that is something that is incredibly important to me um, and something that I think about every single day that I'm on the bench. Every judge, when you look at a case, you have to look at each case uniquely. Every case is unique. Every case is different. You cannot have a blanket policy on how to address all these cases. Um, and so that's what I do. You know, there's not, um, there's not a, a disposition for these types of cases that applies to every single case, right? Every case is different. Every case is nuanced. The individuals involved in the case are different. And so, and the other thing I'll say is at the misdemeanor level, so I'm, my court handles primarily misdemeanors, it does allow for a lot of discretion in terms of how to handle a particular case. There may be cases where there's a low level of violence, where you've got someone who's never been in trouble before, and maybe it was all based on circumstances or alcohol use or drug use. And it's not really a domestic violence case, but the offense was against someone who they had a relationship with. That's going to be disposed of differently. You know, that might be counseling is appropriate in that case. Or you may have a case on the other end of the spectrum where it is pretty severe violence. Now, remember, even though I deal with misdemeanors, it's, that, that covers quite a bit of ground broken bones, uh, all of that. We see that. Um, and so in that type of case where the risk of lethality is high, that's going to be very different, right? That might look like a conviction or a probation or something like that. So every case is different. Um, and I think, you know, it's important as judges to um, remember that and to remember that people walking into your courtroom deserve uh, your impartiality and your ability to treat them as a human being and to listen to their side of the story. Well, and you also talked about how, because you've done this for so long, you're able to give some grace about if someone is late to your court. Yes, absolutely. I think, and I was saying this to uh, actually one of the, the lawyers in my court who was upset with his client because his client was not in court on time and was getting frustrated and said, well, I've got, you know, I've got to go to this court and this court, and I don't have time to wait around here. And I actually talked to him um, privately, and I said, look, I understand your frustration. I get that. You've got a million things going on, dealing with a number of different cases. But you have to understand that a lot of the folks who are in the criminal justice system are there because they have suffered some trauma in their lives. And they are there because life hasn't always been easy for them. So the things that you and I take for granted, getting in a car, getting somewhere, getting from point A to point B, um, using our iPhone to tell us when we're going to get there, um, you know, those things are not applicable to every single person. A lot of times people have to take buses, multiple buses. They have to drop off kids at daycare or someone's house or school. And 
They don't have jobs where they can just take off easily. So there's so many different things to consider. Um, we can't treat the criminal justice system like we used to, just, you know, um, without any consideration for people's lives, what's impacted them, what continues to impact them, what led them to our doors in the first place. Well, and while you are great at being a judge, you have shared that one of the hardest things was running for judge and doing the piece where you have to ask for money, come up with a catchy slogan. The worst. So since some people in our audience might have similar aspirations, how did you handle that? I didn't know. Ignorance truly is bliss <laughs> sometimes because I think if I knew how hard it was going to be, I don't know. I don't know if I, I – it just – it was the hardest thing I think I've ever done. And I've had two kids. Um, <laughs> and I have two teenagers. Uh, it, you know, I think it helps when you're doing something that you're passionate about because you always remember that. Every day you wake up, you think, okay, I got to remember why I'm doing this. You know, I am the right person for this job because I know that the other people who want this job don't have the experience I do, don't have the passion I do. So I have to get up and I have to get out there. The hardest part I think for me is, as I said earlier, I'm an introvert. I don't like putting myself out there and you really have to put yourself out there. I was going to meetings. I was, you know, um, I remember <laughs> initially on, I was told you have to sum yourself up in two minutes. And that was being generous. Some of them were 60 seconds or less. You have two minutes to talk about who you are and convince us why, you know, we should endorse you over the other candidate. And to me, I just thought, well, wait, why is this even a question? At first, I was naive enough to think, why? I, I mean, but I've done this work for 25 years. Wait, shouldn't that be enough? Turns out that's not enough, um, or it wasn't at the time. Uh, but it, it is challenging, um, but it's doable. And again, I, I think it helped me immensely that I love this work. And it helps when you know what you're talking about. And you can really speak to voters about why this issue is so important, why this court is so important. Unfortunately, right around the time I was running, we had a double homicide related to domestic violence in Travis County in Northwest Austin, right outside of an apartment complex, right next to a Starbucks, Trader Joe's. And actually, it was a triple homicide. A woman was murdered, her young daughter and her young daughter's boyfriend, who just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think our entire community was shocked by what had happened. To see two young, innocent kids being murdered, both about to go to college, graduate from high school. And it is jarring. Um, but it's also a reminder that this issue is something that we can't play around with. You really do need to. Um, look at these cases carefully. The decisions that I make are very important, not only for the protection of the complainant, but also for our community. A lot of people don't know that there's a huge intersection between gun violence and domestic violence. All the studies that have been done show us that 
over half of the cases where there have been mass shootings, the mass shooter has had a history of domestic violence. You all know about the tower shooting, right, at UT years and years and years ago. I don't even remember what year that was. But a lot of people don't know that the shooter actually shot and killed his mother or mother-in-law and his wife before he went to the tower. Um, the shooting that just happened not that long ago where the guy was shooting outside of a mobile home park. I think it was a mobile home park. His shooting is AR-15. His neighbors came and said, can you please stop because it's 9 o'clock and we have a baby who's trying to sleep. And then he went and he took his AR-15 and he shot and killed all of them. He had a history of domestic violence. So these are very important issues that affect our community. And I think when I started talking about that when I was running, I realized that that's what people want to hear. They don't want to hear that we're done with the old way of running for office and campaigning. Thank goodness. It's no longer about what your last name is, who you knew, how much money you have. Now people want to know because it's young people like you who are now voting and you care about issues. You care about, does this person have experience? You know, can they walk the walk? And it's not just the talk. So since your whole career has been focused on domestic violence and all of these very heavy things <laughs> that you know because of that background, how do you decompress so that you don't just sit at home in the fetal position all day long? <laughs> uh, people ask me this a lot, especially after 25 years of doing this. You know, what's crazy is I think um, for me, I get so much joy out of seeing the transformation that can happen in people's lives. And sometimes that's the defendant who, you know, has, and now that I've been on the bench for four years almost, seeing people who've been in my court who have changed, who have, you know, maybe they're in the pretrial diversion program, so they're not going to get convicted if they complete this very intensive counseling. And they do it and they come back and they say, you know what, I learned a lot. Um, because these are learned behaviors. Uh, when you are, um, controlling in a relationship. It's usually something that you've seen in your home, something you've witnessed, something you've learned, and something you can unlearn. Not everybody, but some people. So that gives me a lot of joy. Uh, one of the things I've started doing in my court is, uh, and this is kind of silly, but my now 13-year-old had a ton of stuffed animals. And so when he decided to get rid of them. I brought them to court and I keep them in a box under the bench. And every now and then I have these little kids who come with their parents to court. And if you think about that, what it, it's just not a place for a kiddo to be, right? And so I want to make that experience different for them. I want to look back on that. I want them to look back on that and think, that was not terrible, you know? And so now we have this sort of pro not even a program, but I have anytime I see a kid in the audience, I have them come to the bench, I talk to them, I always tell them that they're much more uh, respectful and well behaved than any of the adults in the courtroom, which gets a laugh out of everyone. And I give them a stuffed animal and I ask them to take care of it. And it's just the sweetest thing. I had a little boy this week who's eight years old. He came with his dad. His dad was gonna do a class and his case was gonna get dismissed. But he was with his dad, and he comes up to uh, the bench, and I asked him what his favorite animal was, and he said a lion. I had a, is it a caracal? It's, it's a, 
my son loved cats, big cats. And so I had that. So I give it to him. And he immediately hugs it and says, you know, thank you. And I, he said he's going to take care of it. I ended up having to call his dad back to the bench just to go over some of the things that was, you know, for his dismissal. And this young man came forward again. And I said, by the way, I forgot to tell you that you can actually name the cat. And he said, oh, I did. I named her Miss Judge. I mean, and you already saw what a crybaby I am. That was it. I just, I looked at my bailiff and I said, oh, great. (laughs) Well, and if you ever run out of stuffed animals and if it's appropriate, we could ask the audience to help do some sort of drive and bring you brand new unused stuffed animals. Oh my gosh. So if we figure out how to do that, I'll put that in the podcast notes so that folks know how to do that. I would love that because we are running out now because we've given so many away. Well, you must, unless your son had hundreds of stuffed animals no, at some he had point, quite a bit, you but will yes. run out yes. of your personal <laughs> one. So we will do what we can Thank to get you, you a drive because very sweet of you. It, it does make sense that, especially in this type of court, right? even if the situation wasn't about the kid, yeah. they know what's happened. And now they're in court listening to the play-by-play exactly. of whatever the thing is. Yep. So... Good for you. Well, thank you. To give them a stuffed animal. (laughs) Miss Judge. I'm going to start calling you Miss Judge. What advice do you have for attorneys who might want to follow in your footsteps? Do it for the right reason. Really, um, I think the community deserves that. And I think it will be so much easier for anyone who's trying to follow this path. If you're doing it for the right reason and you love what you're doing, it just will be so much easier. It's so much easier to advocate for yourself and to talk about yourself and what you bring to the table and to be authentic um, when you have the experience to back it up, when you have the passion to back it up. If I walked in there and I, I really wondered, you know, when I remember when I was uh, being interviewed by the commissioner's court and I knew that there were 18 other people who were applying and I remember thinking, what are they going to talk about? Because this is about domestic violence. This is a very specialized court. You have to understand the dynamics involved here. You have to understand the nuances in these cases. They are so complex. One case is not like the other. Um, And also, there's some dangerous cases, and there's some dangers involved, and you have to understand that too. Um, And so you experience is huge. Um, You know, so follow your passion. And, and you will get to wherever it is that you want to be, whether it's a judge or whatever it is. What's next for you? Uh, well, since it was so hard to get here, I think I'm going to stay put for a little bit. <laughs> but I think for me, always, I've always had this dream, and I don't know if it'll happen or not, but I've always had this dream of having a nonprofit at some point um, where kids who are affected by domestic violence, if there's some way to, you know, we we can identify these kids easily, right? So especially in family court, sometimes even in my court, in courts that handle protective orders, where these kids can come and it's just for kids to be able to obtain services. Um, Whether it's counseling, whether it's tutoring, or an after-school program, snacks, food, uh, entertainment that's safe, somewhere where they can come to break the cycle 
and to also teach them about what a healthy relationship looks like. Because again, this is cyclical, it's a learned behavior. And so if we can stop the cycle, that to me would just be so rewarding. And I love kids so much. To be able to do that would be a dream come true. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think that the audience will love your story. Uh, and I'm excited to get to know you some more and all that you have to come. And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. This was a treat. Thanks, y'all.